we're going to go ahead and finish up our series in the book of Philippians. This is book, uh, Philippians part 7. For those of you who, are, who haven't been here for this whole thing, I realize there's not seven books or seven chapters in the book of Philippians. So this is not chapter 7. This is part 7 of our series. We're actually going to finish chapter 4 today or go all the way through chapter 4. And actually, I've got to be honest with you, today it kind of ends with a bang. Because in this final section of the letter, this final chapter of this letter, Paul just goes shotgun on some stuff. We're going we're gonna to deal with a lot of stuff. We're going to learn a lot. Um, Paul's going to, one, he's going to begin to, con- or he's going to continue encouraging unity, specifically from, from two members of the church. Apparently there's a couple ladies in the church that were likely leaders. We don't know if they were uh, going to the same church. We don't know if they were going to, uh, if they had separate house church. We don't know what was going on, but for whatever reason, they were in disagreement with one another. And Paul is basically saying, you need to knock that junk off and start working together. If Paul talked like me, that's, that's how he would have said it. You need to knock this stuff off, start working together. He continues to remind us to rejoice. That we talked about, Paul mentions joy in, in this letter so many times that it'll make your head spin. It's almost like he, he thought it was important. We, we, could, we could believe that. He mentions it so much. He also reminds us not to be anxious. Anybody ever been anxious? I've been anxious. He says, hey, don't be anxious but rather trust in the Lord. And we're going we're gonna to spend a little bit of time talking about that. We're going to see how that we're supposed to re- rely on Jesus in every situation because He's our strength. Anybody ever heard the, the, the statement that uh, uh, the, the Lord is my strength and Him I can do everything, basically? We're going to see what that is actually talking about. It doesn't mean that uh, you can lift 400 pounds. He can probably get you there, but it's not, it's, not a, it's not a magic trick. But He's talking about a specific purpose, His strength in our lives. And then finally, we're going to see the impact of being generous, both to the receiver of that generosity, but also to the person who's giving. Amen? So without further ado, let's get started. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. You know, one thing that I love about reading Paul's letters is you'll never, ever doubt his love and his care for the people that he's writing to. I mean, all through this letter to the Philippians, it's evident how much he loves them, how much he cares for them. And he states it explicitly here. He says, my brothers whom I love and long for. Because this isn't a game for Paul. How many know that some people get into ministry and it becomes a, uh, a tally in their hat? It becomes a scorecard. How many people can I, can I get to come to my events? How many people can I get to hear me speak? And, and that's not what it is to Paul. Paul's not out there trying to make a name for himself. He's trying to tell people about it because he loves them and he cares about them. They're not just tallies on a scorecard and he genuinely loves them and he genuinely longs for them and i i paul is one of the people that when i read the bible he's who i want to be like i want to think like paul i want to act like paul and he also says imitate me as i imitate christ so i think it's a good person for me to imitate but he genuinely loves them. that means that his thoughts are for these people that he cares about them he has a desire to be with them and he has a desire to minister to them and he has a desire not only for them to live that way, he says, to, to, to be full. He says, whom I love and long for, he says, stand firm thus. He wants them to not only be whole in Christ, he doesn't just care about them. Uh, one, like I said, is just so he can say, look how many people I know and how many people I touch, but he, he cares about them. He wants them to be whole. He wants them to be pure, to actually live that out in their lives because these people are his joy. And that's something that I've always had a hard time understanding when you talk about other people being your joy. 
Because when you look into other people's lives, when you begin to invest in other people's lives, then it, it, it spurs something inside of you where you're willing to sacrifice for them, where you're willing to do something for them. And it's just like when, when Jesus went to the cross, he says, it says it was for the joy set before him, he despised the shame. That means that Jesus was willing to endure anything for us. And Paul imitated Christ. He said that you guys are my joy and you're my crown. And I'm willing to endure whatever it took. So if you guys know, when he first went to, to Philippi, he gets arrested, he gets thrown in prison, gets caught in an earthquake, but that was from God, so it was a good thing. But uh, uh, he goes through all kinds of stuff for these people because he loved them and he cared about them. He genuinely was worth, uh, felt it was worthy to give up even his life to make sure that they heard the gospel. It was worth it to him. And he's... Then he encourages them to stand firm thus in the Lord. He says, look, you're who I love, you're who I long for, you're my joy, you're my crown. When he says you're my crown, he's saying that you're my, my it's not him, him building up a treasure, but it's his evidence of what God's doing in their lives. And the truth is, the scripture says, when we stand before God, we're going to throw our crowns at his feet to honor him for what he's done. He says, I want you guys to stand firm. And if you remember what he was talking about the, the last chapter, he wants them to stand firm, resist temptation, and ultimately walk out the things that he's been teaching them. Because how many know that the, the devil wants nothing more for you to fall? The devil wants nothing more for you to, than for you to crumble, to give up. One of the things I'm always encouraging people is you don't actually fail unless you don't get back up. Sometimes we get knocked down. Sometimes we do stupid stuff. If you guys didn't know, even the pastor does stupid stuff from time to time. But all I know to do is to get back up. You only fail if you stay down and, and, and you get up and you stand firm. To stand firm thus in the Lord. And I want you to know that if you want to drive the devil crazy, stand firm. Don't give up when he starts telling you all kinds of crazy things. And then he continues on in Philippians 4, 2-3. Two through three, he says, I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So these are those two women I was telling you about, Judea and, and Syntyche or Syntyche. I'm going to have to ask God why all the names are so hard to pronounce in the Bible one day. But these two women, they were instrumental to the church in Philippi. They were, they, were, they were leaders in the church. They helped build this church. And it's an interesting thing because in most churches, Paul planted men. It was the men that he sent out to do these things. They were the, the men were the key players. But in Philippi, we see that actually women were, were the ones most mentioned in the Bible. They were the key players. How many of you know that, that uh, Lydia was actually the first convert in Philippi? She was a woman. She was a merchant. She was a, a Greek lady. And uh, it's actually a funny story because she wanted what, what they had. And she's listening to Paul and she's intent. And then she says, you guys got to come stay with me. And the impression you get is like, no, 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 we don't. No, you just, it actually says she prevailed upon them. I wonder what she did to get them to stay with them. I don't, do you guys ever read the Bible and think about this stuff? I, am I the only one? I don't know. It says she prevailed on them. She wouldn't take no for an answer. My wife does that sometimes. She prevails on me. But I love her. And she loves me. If you don't believe me, just ask her. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> you see, I, I don't know what's going on with these ladies. The Bible, this, is, this is what we get. 
I don't know if they went to the same church, if they were part of the same group, or they, they were part of smaller house churches. I don't know what was going on, but Paul had a, a, a special message for them because they're at odds with each other. And the funny thing is, is that they weren't really living up to their names. So, Yudia means a prosperous journey. That's the meaning of her name. And, and Sintike means a pleasant acquaintance. And apparently that's not how they were behaving, either one of them. And Paul says, you know what, ladies? You guys need to agree in the Lord. I entreat you to agree in the Lord. Like I said in the, the New Wayne translation, it says you guys need to knock it off and get along. It's like you tell your kids. What Paul should have done is got them one of those get-along shirts. You know the big one where you put both of them in it and they each have one arm out? Maybe Paul should have done that. But he says, listen, I, I, I need you guys to get along. And we don't know the nature of the disagreement, but Paul expected them to work it out amongst themselves. You see, Paul actually expected them to act mature. Do you know that, that God expects some of you guys to act mature as well? To work things out amongst yourselves. If you guys are having a disagreement, particularly in the church, or in the, get together and talk it out. Apologize. Ask for forgiveness. Do whatever you need to do. Work it out. Come to agreement with one another. Because unity in the church was to be their highest concern. How many know that when there's not unity in the church, when the church is in disarray, when the church is falling apart, when people look from the outside in, it doesn't look like a very good place to be. People look at the church from the outside and go, man, it's actually worse in there than it is out here. I think I'll stay out here. But unity in the church is important. One, it, it, the, the Bible says as far as it depends on us, be, be at peace with all men. It allows us to, to, to not drag Jesus' name to the mud, but when people look at what we have, you know what, that's something worthy of having. So he said unity in the church was to be their highest concern. And like I said when we started this whole series, is that uniformity is not the same as unity. How many of you guys remember that? You can be in unity but not look exactly the same. That's like in your own household, husbands and wives. You should be in unity but you don't have to be uniform. You don't have to be the same person, do the same things, like the same things, have the same roles. Matter of fact, your life will probably be harder if you're that much alike. Yesterday, uh, we went out and there was a handful of us to, to do that food distribution. We went over to Hollinger Elementary School. Turns out there's another church uh, uh, over there that, that heads it up. And there was actually three different churches there, including ours, that were volunteering to hand out food to those who were in need over there. And one of them was a Baptist church. I mean, no, we're not a Baptist church. We're a uh, uh, charismatic, evangelical, non-denominational church. So uh, we have some different theology than a Baptist church. One of my closest friends is Pastor uh, Jeff from the Springs Church. They're also a Baptist church right over there. He's an amazing guy. I mean, no, we don't have all the exact same theology. But you know what? We can still work together. We're not uniform but we're united for Jesus. My, my, my personal opinion is as long as we got the Jesus stuff right, as long as we got the, the heaven and hell stuff right, and what I mean by that is uh, that Jesus is the only way to heaven, as long as we got Jesus right, the, the important stuff right, then we can work together. It doesn't matter if, if you do believe in the gifts, of the, or we believe in the gifts of the Spirit, and they don't. It doesn't matter. Any of those things, none of that stuff, it's, it's, it's minor stuff in the grand scheme of things. As long as people are getting saved, as long as the gospel is being preached, as long as we're united on the core of the gospel, the other stuff can, can work itself out. 
I have a strong suspicion that every single one of us is going to stand before Jesus one day and find out how much we actually got wrong. But as long as we got the Jesus part right, we get to stand in front of him. Amen? So we don't have to be uniform. We don't have to be exactly the same, but we do have to be united for the purpose of the kingdom of heaven. Amen? And then Paul begins to entreat his true companion. You guys know who that is? Don't feel bad, nobody else knows either. So nobody knows who this true companion is. But apparently it's somebody that, that Paul trusted to help these women. He says, look, my true companion, probably whoever he's specifically writing this letter to, uh, he says, my true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So Paul says, they're in a mess. They're disagreeing. There's something going on, but it's not like they're excluded from the church. It's not like they lost their salvation over whatever they're going with. They're still fellow workers in the gospel. They still have their names in the book of life. But he says, you know what, my true companion, can you go and help them get this figured out? Maybe counsel them. Maybe uh, help them get past it. Maybe grab them both by the ears and drag them into the same room. I don't know. Paul doesn't say. I just know how I'd do it. But he says, help them come together. And when I read this stuff, what I find is interesting is, is that many times when, when somebody's talking to somebody in the Bible, you should just take out their name and put yours in it. So that way when you read it, you say, yes, I ask you also, myself, to help these who have labored side by side come together. And we, we apply that in our own lives. We should be encouraging one another in the church. We should be strengthening each other in the church. When we know that people are having a struggle, we shouldn't be taking sides. We should be working on how do we bring them back together so that we can be in unity once again. How can we come along, no matter how difficult the situation is, how many know that sometimes we deal with some difficult stuff? There's some hard stuff that goes on, especially in families. And as you guys know, I believe that we're a family. And that means that in families, sometimes you find the person that can tick me off more than anybody in the world is my sister. But I love her and I'd do anything for her. And I'd be right beside her and we always work it out no matter what's going on. And in a church, we're a family as well. Sometimes we're going to have stuff that we're going to irritate each other. We're going to get in, under each other's skin. Truth is, I'm probably going to irritate you at some point. I know this because I've irritated people before in the church. But never intentionally, not because I wanted to harm them, but the truth is, is that we can always work it out. The question is not, not what happens when we get in a mess, but what do we do to get out of it? What do we, how do we handle it afterwards? Do we act like a family, come together and work it out? Compromise. If you see somebody else having trouble, just like this true companion, we should be helping each other to work things out and, 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 and get together. No matter how difficult the situation is. And then Paul continues on in verse 4-7, through seven, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Once again, that important message of joy in the book of Philippians. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So here's that word again, rejoice. You know, when something's mentioned so many times, I think we can all agree that it might just be important. It might be important for us to rejoice. And he says to rejoice always. 
which is an interesting thing to say because we all get it when stuff is good, right? When you get that promotion at work, oh, rejoice, God is good. When you get healed, rejoice. When you have a new baby, rejoice. All those things that are good in life, let's rejoice. But he, he says always. And that's where it starts breaking down for us, right? When you get laid off from work, rejoice. That just sounds dumb. When you get hurt or sick, rejoice. When your world seems to be falling apart, rejoice. You see, that's where we start to struggle. Because one, for some reason in our heads, what we think he's saying is rejoice for those things. No, you shouldn't rejoice for those things. Rejoice in spite of those things. Because it doesn't matter how bad things get down here, how many other gods still on the throne, that you're still saved, that nobody can steal that from you or take that away from you. He still loves you. He still calls you friend. You're still pure. You're still holy. If you've received the free gift of, gift of salvation, none of those things are permanent. So we don't rejoice for those things, but we rejoice in spite of those things because we serve a God who loves us and cares about us. And He's going to get it through us. The Bible says it'll never leave you nor forsake you. David says, I'm, I'm old now, but I, or, I, I was young, and I've never seen the righteous forsaken. In spite of those things, we rejoice. And then He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. This is a hard one for some people. This is a hard one for some people in this church. I'm not looking at anybody specifically. Some people I'm trying hard not to look at. <laughs> you know what? We should never be intentionally offensive to anybody. And the reason why I throw in the word intentional is because sometimes if you're being obedient to the Word of God, you're going to offend some people. So we shouldn't go out of our way to not be offensive when it comes to the Word of God, when we're talking about truth, when we're talking about the Gospel. But in every other situation in life, we need to think about the things we say. We need to be reasonable to people. And we should be calm and caring and responsive to everyone, even those we disagree with. You know, one of the, the things that I, I think is a huge breakdown that we're having in this country is that things have gotten so far divided is that we're no longer willing to have a conversation. I'm right and you're wrong. And that's all there is to it. And this country politically is, is falling apart because there's, no, there's no, no willingness to be reasonable anymore. There's no willingness to talk and come together. And truthfully, if in, in many cases, I say that to Christians, shame. Every, every action that we have should be characterized by love. The love of God that's inside of us. And the truth is, is if we can't actually come together and talk, we're never going to change anybody's minds. We're never going to, all people are going to do is have what they have in their head and, and there's going to be no progress. There's going to be no moving forward. So, so church, Christians, let your reasonableness be known to everybody. Let people f know that you love them even if you disagree with them. And that's more than just saying it. Sometimes that's, you have to live that out. And then he goes on to say, do not be anxious about anything. So how many things should we be anxious about? Nothing. The good news is this list is easy to remember because there's nothing on it. 
What am I supposed to be anxious for? Nothing. This is another tough one. You ever notice the Bible is full of stuff that like on paper like makes perfect sense? On, you're like, this is amazing. This is true. I believe it. But living it out sometimes can be a little bit harder than you expect. Maybe I'm the only one that feels that way. But uh, this is a tough one because the Bible says not to be anxious about everything. And I preach this all the time. How many know that sometimes I still get anxious and I have to grab a hold of that? I have to, to make sure that it doesn't let, let it run my life. Because really all anxiety is is fear, right? All anxiety is fear of something that could happen. Think about how many times you've been worried about something that never ever came to pass. Let me ask you, anybody ever have arguments with people in the shower? In your own head? (laughs) Have you ever had full-on conversations with people in your head? I've had some fantastic arguments with people that never happened. And I think about that because I'm I'm anxious. What's going to happen? Why didn't so-and-so show up? Why did they say this? How come they didn't didn't answer their phone? How come they didn't return a text? And all of a sudden you start worrying, what did I do? What did I say? And you just start getting anxious about this stuff and and what's going to happen? But I look back at my life with how many of those conversations I've prepped in my head. I look back at all the things that I've been afraid of in my life and it almost never comes to pass. And I wonder how much brain power, how much emotion, emotional energy have I wasted on stuff that was never a reality. That's why the Bible says, do not be anxious. As a matter of fact, every time you read about this, it's, it's not actually a, 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 a suggestion. It's a command. Do not be anxious. Put your trust in the Lord. And I get that it's, hard, it's easier said than done. But when those thoughts come in your head, you've got to grab hold of them and make a conscious decision. No, I'm going to trust today. And even stuff that did come to pass. Because there have been things I have worried about that did come to pass. Worrying about it didn't fix anything. It didn't make it any less so. But even in those situations, I found that I'm served much better when I trust God and leave everything to Him, even when things are rough, than when I try to do it on my own. So the question is, what is the answer to anxiety? Then how do we deal with that? What, what are the steps that we need to be taking? And the good news is the Bible doesn't leave us empty-handed or without a, a, a road map, if you will. He says, do not be anxious about everything, but instead, in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So the answer is we begin talking to God about it. Are you worried about something? Give it to God. Start trusting Him. It says, make your request known to Him in prayer with thanksgiving and with supplication. Supplication is another word for, for humbleness. You know, we, we don't go to God telling God you need to do this or else, but we, we understand that He loves us and we're, we want to receive whatever He has for us. And He says, with thanksgiving and supplication... Let God know what you need and what you're trusting Him to provide. And how many know we serve a faithful God? He's always faithful. He'll always get you through every situation. Even when those situations come to pass, He'll still be there right by your side to help you get through it. And He says here, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God and God will do whatever you ask. That's actually not what it says. It says, 
If you'll do that, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ. See, that's the one thing that we have to understand is that, that when we're struggling, God wants us to come to Him. And, and, you know, when we stand in faith, I believe that God listens to our prayers, that He answers our prayers, but sometimes we go through stuff. And the, the prayers, is, He's not a, a heavenly slot machine where we get everything that we want. But what he does says is that I'll give you peace no matter what you're going through. And we pray and we ask and God is there for us. And, he's, and I believe that God wants the best for every single person in this room. You know, and, we, and sometimes I think we don't think about God as the Father that He is because how many times have your kids, those of you with kids, have asked you for something and you've said no? Not because you didn't want to, or not because you were just trying to be a pain, or, but because you knew that if you gave them what they asked for, that it wouldn't be good for them. Yeah. But you know what? You're still right there by their side with whatever they're going through. And If we're like that as, as regular parents, how much better will God be when we go through these things? He says, make your prayer, your requests known to Him. Do it with thanksgiving, not with an attitude. Do it in humbleness. And when you'll do that, it says the peace of God will come upon you. You have peace no matter what happens. See, that's what I love about God is that, that it doesn't matter what happens to me. Whatever I go through, I know He's going to be there. He's not going to leave me. He's going to get me through it in one way or another. And I'll always come out stronger on the other end. And I love it. He says, it's not just peace, but it's a peace that surpasses all understanding. You want to know why it's that kind of peace? Because from the outside looking in, people don't understand how you can get through what you're getting through. They say, you know what, I don't know what's going on with you, but how can you be happy? How can you be full of joy? How can you, you be so calm with everything that's going on in your life? Because from the outside looking in, it doesn't make any sense. Because it's the peace that you have surpasses all understanding because you know in whom you trust. Amen? Amen. Knowing that God loves you and has your best interests at heart regardless of your circumstances, will always bring great peace. Amen? And i got to get moving. Verse 8 through 9, it says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Did you know your mind's one of the greatest battlefields that you're going to ever be on? Whatever you choose to think about is what will guide and dictate your actions. And I'm not talking about the stuff that tries to sneak in. I get that we have temptations. We have stuff that tries to sneak in our head. That's why the Bible says take every thought captive. Some stuff you need to grab and get it out as soon as you can. The, the, the old uh, uh, expression is that you can't stop a bird from landing on your head, but you can stop it from making a nest. So that's why, that's why I said we take every thought captive. So I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm not talking about the temptations. I'm not talking about the little things that try to, to sneak their, themselves in. Because you can stand against those. You can take them captive. You can throw them right back out. But I'm talking about the stuff that we choose to think about. The stuff that we make a constant decision to think about. Because when we think about these things, they end up dictating our actions. That's why James says in uh, 1.14-15, he says basically, each time a person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then this desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. 
When we don't let our, we don't take our thoughts captive and we begin to intentionally things, think on things that are not godly, it begins to, to give birth to action in our life, gives birth to sin. When we let our thoughts go free, we have a tendency to, to let them be taken to places where we don't want them to be. And your mind's crazy. Like, have you ever been laying in bed at night and been thinking about something? This, this isn't even sinful stuff, but you'd be thinking about something and then you'll you're kind of come to you a second and you'll be on a completely different thought. Have you ever followed your, your thoughts back to see how you got there? <laughs> Next time you do it, like lay in bed, try to think about something and then just figure out what you're thinking about five minutes later and wonder how you got there. You're, maybe it's just me. I don't know. My mind doesn't shut up. But I'll, sometimes I'll follow it back and I'm like, what? It's like the, the, the six degrees of Kevin Bacon or something going on in my head. And I wonder how I get there. Because your mind, if you're not careful with it, if you're not intentional with it, it'll get wherever it wants to go. So we have to, to, to pay attention to the things that we're thinking about. And Paul says, well, think about these things. He says, think about whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. These are the stuff that we intentionally think about. Because the devil wants you to think on and believe lies. But the Bible says that we should think on what's true. Do you guys know how to tell what's true? If it's in line with Jesus and his word, and the word of God, it's true. And another thing that this world will try to tell you right now is that truth is, is, is internal. That we all can have our own truth. Which is ridiculous because truth by definition is only truth. There can only be one truth. We all can't have our own truth. Or truth kind of breaks down. So he says, think on what's true. And then he says, think on things that are honorable or just. Those things that are, that are honorable or just are those things that are respectable and right. You know, that's the thing is, is that we don't have to really put out a list of things that we should be thinking about. Matter of fact, if you ever want to know what you're not supposed to think about, just ask a non-Christian. They'll tell you. They seem to know everything that we're supposed to be doing. But the truth is, is that if you are, are walking in step with the Holy Spirit, if you've been renewing your mind daily, if you're reading your word, you're nat- your thoughts are naturally going to align with God. And when you begin thinking on things that don't align with Him, you'll feel that, that tension in your spirit. You'll feel that, that uh, it, it reminds me of when you have sandpaper running against each other. When you're, because it's against our character. It's against who we are. It doesn't line up with who we are in Christ. So we feel that tension. But he says, yeah, think about what's true. Think about what's ever honorable or just or what's, what's respectable and right. And then he says, uh, think on whatever is pure. And the things that are pure are in direct contradiction to those things that are morally impure. Probably the greatest, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? The, the, the cul- greatest culprit of, of that in today's generation is, is sexual impurity. We need to make sure that we, we got our minds on the right thing. And then he says, think on things that are lovely, commendable, or if there's any excellence. Anything worthy of praise, think about these things. See, these are the things that encourage us and motiv- motivate us to live the lives that we're called to live by Christ. Think about those things. Your mind is a battlefield. You have to control the things that you're thinking about. 
And the greatest way that I know how to do that is to spend time in your word and spend time in prayer. As your mind gets renewed, naturally it'll think about different things. But if all you do is watch, watch Game of Thrones, you're going to have issues. Start putting other stuff in your head, amen? And then finally he says, don't just think about it. Live it out. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. You know, Paul's talking to the Philippian church, but it's the same instruction as to us. Think on these things, and what you've seen me do, what we've read about Paul do, and, and what we've seen our Christian leaders that we do insofar that it lines up with the Word of God. Any Christian leader that's doing stuff that doesn't line up with the Word of God, don't do that. But he says that, that live this out. Practice these things. And you'll find that God is with you when you do these things. In verses 10 through 13, he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You know what I find interesting about this story is that the thing that caused... Paul the most joy was not that he received the gift, but it was actually their concern for him that he was most. He says, look, I rejoice in the Lord greatly now at length that you have revived your concern for me. It wasn't the, the, the money that he received or whatever that he received, which I mean, it was a good thing. Paul needed it. But that wasn't what made him rejoice. What he rejoiced in was about the relationship that he had with these people. Everything is about relationship. This letter, the whole purpose, the primary purpose of this letter was just to say thank you for the gift that Aphroditus had sent. Well, Paul wasn't joyful because of the gift itself, but because of, of his relationship with them, because he knew that he had people that were concerned and cared about him. And that's the thing, is that Paul would have gotten by without the gift. We know that because he goes on to say that, that uh, I've learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. Now, I'm sure he appreciated the gift, but he would have made it. He would have survived. God would have, would have made it so he could fulfill his purpose. But he was so blessed by their care and concern for him. And what I also love about Paul, as we read about this, is that Paul's demeanor and well-being aren't actually at the mercy of the stuff that he has. This is something that we all Christians need to get a hold of is that our happiness, our, our, our joy isn't the result of the things that we have, our circumstances, but because of what he's done in him. But Paul says, you know what? I'm content no matter what I'm facing. He says, he says not that I'm speaking of being a need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. And in every circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He says that no matter what he was facing, no matter what was going on, his joy wasn't dictated by those things. He knew how to live in the lowest of times and how to live in the highest of times. The truth is, in America, not very many of us know how to live in the lowest of times because we've never had to. In this country, we are some of the most blessed people that have ever lived. And the poorest among us are richer than some of the richest in third world countries. I've spent time doing missionary work in Africa. It is a blessing to have porcelain in your bathroom. It really is. 
I can tell you this right now. Where the stuff doesn't flush, it becomes repugnant very, very fast. We are so blessed in this country. And we have so much. Yet it seems like all we do is complain. One of the things that I've been trying to do more and more recently is every morning to just as I'm praying and spending time with God, just begin thanking Him for all the stuff that I have. Every single day, I thank Him for the same stuff. But I found that when I do it regularly, I'm actually more appreciative of the stuff that I had. One of the things as a pastor that I'm always running into is, is I want the church to grow. And I want to do, you guys that have been here with us for a long time, you know we make changes, we do things. And my purpose for all these changes is always so that when people come in here, there is nothing standing in the way of them receiving the gospel. I want the music to sound good. I want the place to be clean and nice. I want it to smell good. I want the bathrooms to be clean. I want it to feel comfortable because I don't want anything that we've done be the reason why somebody walks in and walks back out and they don't hear the gospel. So I'm always looking to improve. I'm always looking to make things better. And the other day I walked in and I sat down and I looked around and it just hit me. We have it great in here. We have everything that we need. And more so. Matter of fact, I could preach on paper with you guys sitting on the floor if you'd be willing to sit on the floor. We don't need any of this stuff. We are so blessed. We have so much. The fact that we have a building that we can come together and, and worship God in a country where we're not persecuted for doing so. We don't have to do it in secret. We are so blessed. I think that when stuff gets rough for Americans, we begin to complain and, and whine. I remember when I was in, in high school, one of the stories that we were told, not in high school, I think it was in grade school, and maybe somebody can tell me what this story is or where it's from, but I remember it. It was about a, a young married couple. I think they were in the, living in the Great Depression time, and she had beautiful long hair, and he had a pocket watch that didn't have a chain on it. It was coming up around Christmas time. I think it was Christmas time. And they were trying to figure out how to, to buy gifts for one another. So the gal, she cut her hair and sold it so she would have enough money to buy a chain for the pocket watch. Because her husband didn't have one. And then he sold his pocket watch to have enough money to buy her a beautiful uh, a comb or a brush for her hair. These people had nothing. They were poor and they gave up everything for one another. That's just not an attitude that you see. What was the name of that story? And you guys remember? I saw you all nodding your head. What's that? That seems like a weird title for that. <laughs> but uh, those are the stories that warm our heart, though, when we see people that recognize that it's not the stuff that we have that matters, but it's the people, it's the relationships. Like Paul said, it's not the stuff. I'm just so thankful that you were concerned. I have people that are concerned about me. I think that's an attitude that we all need to take. And Paul says, you know what? It doesn't matter what I have. If I'm brought low or if I'm abundant, if I have plenty or if I'm hungry, if I have an abundance or I have need, I've learned the secret. And that's that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me or through Him who strengthens me. You see, that what that's talking about is not about us you know, having the strength to open a pickle jar. But it's talking about how we live our life. It's talking, when we talk about I can do all things 
in Him who strengthens me, it's about I can, I can face every circumstance no matter what it is. We can live in abundance, which is actually what we have right now. And how many know that even in our abundance, it should be Christ giving you the strength to get through whatever you're going through. It should be Christ at the center of your everything. Problem is, is we get into an abundance and we forget who got us there and we start thinking about other stuff and it becomes self-focused instead of Christ-focused. It's amazing how when things go wrong, how people will cry out to God, but when things go good, they pat themselves on the back. And Paul said that I can do all things through him who strengthens me. No matter what you're going through, lean on Christ. Is it good? Lean on Christ and rejoice. Is it bad? Lean on Christ and rejoice because he will get you through no matter what situation that you're going through. And I think Paul rejoiced because these people cared about him because they were the only ones that did, apparently. If you go on in, in verse 14 through 16, it says, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourself know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only, even in Thessalonica. You sent me help for my needs once and again. So not only, they've done it more than once. They've helped them before, and they're the only church that came alongside of them. You see, I think Paul rejoiced not in the gift, but rejoiced in the fact that these people actually cared about him. And they were supporting him, and he had a relationship with them. He actually refers to it as a partnership, which means that it wasn't a one-off gift. They didn't see that 1-800 number on the TV come across and just sent the check once, but they actually partnered with him. They were going to walk alongside him the whole way. They were determined to be there for the long haul, and that blessed Paul. And then he goes on in verse 17 through 20, he says, but it's not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and, may, and my God will supply every need of your, yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Because that's the thing about giving that we try to teach in the church, but so many people don't understand. Giving is not about the one who's receiving. Giving is about the giver. Giving credits the giver. And it doesn't make sense because instinctively we see something going away, but giving always credits the giver. As a pastor, one of the, the hardest things that, that I have to teach on is this subject. And, and you guys can ease your fears. We're not going to take another offering after the service. We already did that. But it's hard for me to talk about this. One, because I grew up uh, with, with every influence of TV and all this stuff making me think that the church just wanted to steal people's money. All they cared about was money. They just wanted your money. So I still, to this day, have to fight that and to preach on giving, and to, to speak to people on giving, and to, to try to help people get through that, it's hard for me because I, I feel like that they're looking at me as someone that just wants their stuff. When the truth is, is that I actually don't need their stuff. God doesn't even need their stuff, but it's actually credit to their account. So when people say, and I tell me, how much do you give? I said, at, at a minimum, we should give 10%. That's the tithe. The tithe started before the law, so it's not a law thing. This actually happened well before the law when Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. This was a principle that was set up back then. But actually, the, the, if you want to look into it, when you get to the New Testament, it's way more than, than 10%. God starts talking about giving, giving everything. Matter of fact, the, the early church, they, gave, they sold everything and just gave it to the church so that they could take care of one another. But the Bible always talks about how it's, it's credited to your account. 
And, he, and Paul says that it's not that I seek the gift, because like I said, Paul would have got by with or without. He says, but I seek the fruit that increases to your account. He wanted something better for them. This is one of the reasons that, that I'll get on to people when, when we're trying to be a blessing to them and, and people are trying to give them. So sometimes people try to, to push back. Oh, no, I don't, they don't have to give me that. And I'm like, listen, let them be a blessing to you. It's not about you. It's about them. Don't steal their blessing because you're being prideful about not wanting to get something. Paul knew he was going to be all right. He could have rejected the gift, but he let them give it because he knew it would be credited to their account. It would be something for them. And then he referred to the gift as an offering. The gift was given to Paul, but it was an offering to God. The gift was given to Paul, but it was an offering to God. That means when you give to the church, sure, we're going to take it, we're going to put it on our bank account, there's bills to pay, we've got to keep the lights on, all of those things. In addition to the, the stuff that we want to make an impact in the community, all that stuff takes money. But, when you give to the church, it's an offering to God. I don't know if you ever pay attention to the slides that I put up there when we give, but it, it always says something about worship through giving. Giving is an act of worship, it's an act of sacrifice. And it's acceptable and pleasing to God. And it, 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 it is credited to your account. And he says, as, as a result, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God is going to meet your needs. You're going to have everything that you need. Now, I'm not saying that, that God, like I said, he's not a heavenly slot machine. It's not about getting rich. Some of you, God will bless beyond your imagination because he knows that if he blesses you, you're going to do more for his kingdom with it. Some of you, you're going to have just what you need because if he gave you anything more, it would destroy you. I believe that God will get you everything that you need. And the best part about it, this is according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You know what that means? It don't run out. That means that doesn't mean that in order for, for, for you to be blessed, then you can't be. That means he has more than enough. Trust God. Put your faith in him. Quit being anxious about everything. And begin to worship him in every area of your life. And that includes your finances. That includes your giving. And it will be credited to your account. And we'll go ahead and finish here. Sorry I went a little long this morning. But in verse 21 through 23, it says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus, the brothers who are with you, or with me greet you, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So this is a normal closing as, as many of Paul's letters. But the, the thing that I want to point on this one that I find most interesting, he says, one, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Now this is a question that I ask many of you heard about. How many of you guys here are saints? If you are born again, you are a saint. It's, it's an identity. It's not a, it's not a title. It's an identity. If you're born again, you are a saint. So he says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. So he's talking to the whole church there. And then he says, the brothers who are with me greet you, which is pretty cool. But then he says this, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now that's pretty cool. Because where's Paul at? Roman prison. Caesar's prison. Paul's in jail, and you remember the beginning of this letter. He's like, you know what? This is meant for harm, but I'm getting people saved. It's all good. People are hearing the gospel. Paul is getting his captors saved, and they're excited to send their greetings to the Philippian church. That's pretty amazing. 
I mean, it's an interesting thing to me because, you know, we, we look at what's going on and we think, oh man, Paul got them saved. They're just going to let them out of prison. No, they still have a job to do. They're still doing what they're supposed to be doing, but they're not one of his brothers and Paul doesn't hold that against them. Matter of fact, he's excited to tell the church. And you know what? The people that are in Caesar's household, the servants, my, my guards, my captive, they got saved. Yeah, I'm still here, but you know what? They're excited to send their greetings as well. I don't know about you, but that's amazing to me to see that kind of stuff. Paul, in the midst of one of the worst situations of his life, says, I know how to do fine with a lot, with plenty, but my, my joy isn't based on the circumstances. You know what? I'm going to get people saved no matter where I'm at. I'm in prison. This doesn't look good, so I'll just get the guards saved. You know what's interesting? What do you think the chances are that Paul would have reached those guards had he not been in prison? That's something to think about. Well, I hope that uh, as we've gone through this, if you've missed the other ones, they're all online. You can see the, the whole series on this. But what an incredible letter of encouragement, a letter of joy, demonstrating uh, generosity, how to be joyful, demonstrating unity. I hope you were blessed by it. I know I was as we were, me and Pastor Joseph, preparing it. I know we were blessed by it, and I hope that you were blessed by it as well. And church, I would encourage you, as we've gone through this, let's be a, a people of unity. Let's be a people who rejoice no matter what our situation is, no matter how bad it is. Let's be a people who press in and trust God and give Him all of our fears. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our heads.